It is a very great honor for me to be here in conversation with Robert Bella tonight. I had a chance to chat with him briefly before we began. Um, because uh, Robert's work is um, extraordinarily well known in the field of the sociology of religion, um, and among those specialists, he would need no uh, introduction. But in a generalist community, I really want to tell you a little about Robert. Um, he is the Elliott Professor of Sociology Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley, best known for his work related to American civil religion, a term he coined in a 1967 article. Uh, his magnum opus, which we're going to be discussing, Religion and Human Evolution, traces the biological and cultural origins of religion. Uh, and Jürgen Habermas, uh, the great uh, German intellectual, wrote of Bella's work, this great book is the intellectual harvest of the rich academic life of a leading social theorist who has assimilated a vast range of biological, anthropological, and historical material in pursuit of a breathtaking project. In this field, I do not know of an equally ambitious and comprehensive study. Um, and also, uh, Hans uh, Joas, is that how you pronounce yes. his name? Yes. Uh, of the University of Chicago. Um, and also uh, Freiburg. Right. And he's, also he's more time in Freiburg than Chicago. <laughs> right. And so he wrote, this book is the opus magnum of the greatest living sociologist of religion. Nobody since Max Weber has produced such an erudite and systematic comparative world history of religion in its earlier phases. That's an extraordinary statement. Bella is also known for his 1985 book, Habits of the Heart, how religions contribute to and detract from America's common good, uh, and as a sociologist who studies religious and moral issues and their connection to society. So this is Wikipedia's summary. Um, but a few other things that I think are of note. Um, uh, uh, Robert was a student of Talcott Parsons at Harvard, and he and Parsons remained intellectual friends until Parsons' death. And I also didn't know that as an undergraduate at Harvard, uh, you were a member of the Communist Party USA and chairman of the John Reed Club. And uh, Mac Bundy threatened to shut it down uh, uh, if, uh, and threatened to withdraw your fellowship if you didn't provide the names of your former associates. So I thought that was an interesting moment in your, in your intellectual past. Uh, he served at various positions at Harvard from 55 to 67 and then became Ford Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and your political views are often classified as communitarian. Uh, uh, Robert is also the author of about a dozen books in addition to the two I've mentioned, and he's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and Bill Clinton awarded him the National Humanities Medal in 2000. So, um, uh, also, Bill Moyers uh, interviewed you, among many other honors. So um, I was saying to Robert before we began that um, I have rarely been as challenged to assimilate um, a book of this extraordinary 
complexity and richness. And so while we cannot cover it all in an hour and a half, I'm hoping that we can provide some insights uh, into the extraordinary thought of the greatest living sociologist of religion. <laughs> so, Robert, with that, <laughs> if you will. Uh, <laughs> Well, the, the Germans love me. <laughs> uh, I did not intend this. I had no choice as to what they put on the back cover. But it is charming to me that they're out of the four blurbs, not one of them is an American. There are two Germans, one Chinese, and one Canadian, Charles Taylor. Uh, of course, uh, all of them have spent much time in this country and are sort of half American. Uh, Hans Joas teaches one quarter a year at Chicago, and uh, Habermas spent a year in the 80s at Berkeley, uh, and Yang Xiao uh, is, uh, had to leave because of Tiananmen and teaches in this country. Uh, so uh, uh, they are American after all. Uh, maybe that's uh, one of the best things about this country is that we have so many uh, people who come from elsewhere and spend time with us. Um, I didn't expect uh, to have my undergraduate membership in the Communist Party. <laughs> but uh, since uh, uh, there are several re review symposia of my book afoot, and uh, most of them are friendly, but uh, one was extremely hostile. Uh, and he accused me of uh, arguing that religion is always in favor of social stability and the status quo. Uh, any careful reader of this book will see, though it's never made explicit, a strong Marxist undercurrent. Uh, uh, the treatment of the early state and the uh, origin of class society is ruthlessly clear on what the brutality involved. And uh, when we get to the axial age, the great uh, beginnings of all our current civilizations in the first millennium BCE, uh, we find that every one of the great uh, figures in that period uh, is very critical of uh, state society and uh, uh, gives uh, very strong uh, criticisms of it. So, uh, although there's no red banner, uh, I never gave up my, <laughs> my earlier beliefs. Uh, they've been modified in many ways, thank God. I never was a Maoist, that's really crazy. Uh, when I was in Beijing last December, and saw this huge portrait of Mao in Tiananmen Square, I was literally horrified. One of the monsters of the 20th century. It's like seeing a big portrait of Hitler on the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. It's a shock. And it's a shock to many Chinese intellectuals. Anyway, I'll lose all my 10 minutes introduction to the book if I go on. Oh, one last thing I have to tell you, very charming thing that just happened. Uh, you know, I thought I was escaping the culture wars because the book stops at uh, roughly the time of Christ and doesn't say anything about Christianity or Islam, <laughs> which usually are at the center of the warfare. But uh, a former student of mine who teaches now in a community college in the East Bay uh, told me he was teaching the book, and particularly the chapter on ancient Israel, and that one of the students in his class asked him, what part of hell does this author come from? which must mean that I'm not giving a fundamentalist view of ancient Israel. Uh, so anyway, I'm sort of pleased. <laughs> I, 
hell's an interesting place. I'm not quite sure which part I come from. Uh, I want to leave uh, time for the discussion and for uh, a conversation with, with Michael. Uh, so I'll just say a few, a few major dimensions that are important to me in this book. It's very important to me that I ground uh, human uh, ev cultural evolution in uh, the whole of life. That I don't have an iron curtain between nature and culture. Unfortunately, there are quite a few humanists, and in a backward kind of way, quite a few natural scientists, who think there is an iron curtain. The humanists don't want anything to do with biology, and certain kinds of biologists think that they can reduce culture to biology. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm certain that culture is an emergence from biology. Where else did it come from? and that uh, human beings are living beings, and we are indeed mammals, we are animals, and uh, it's all too obvious that we are related to the whole of life. Uh, but uh, that means that we have to understand we are not mechanisms. There's one view of uh, the natural world uh, that still lingers in some circles, that it is, uh, totally uh, deterministic, that uh, uh, there is no free will, there is no, uh, not, nothing but ruthless uh, uh, causal uh, 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 material causation, and that everything we think of as consciousness will ultimately be shown to be purely chemical. Purely chemical, I mean, my God. Consciousness is consciousness. Who in their right mind could think that? And yet there are people who think that. Uh, it's not that we're not chemical, of course we're chemical, but the chemical things can give rise to other kinds of things. Uh, and I believe that all of life, right down to the uh, unicellular organisms, the bacteria with which life began three and a half billion years ago, there is something that I could call sentience. Not consciousness as humans, but they know something. They know where it's too cold and where it's too dark and to go somewhere else. And no rock knows how to do that. So the, the, the sense that living uh, beings, even of the simplest sort, have some degree of autonomous behavior. And as some biologists say, participate in their own evolution. This is a theme, I did not think these things up. Chapter two is perhaps the most important chapter in the book, which is about religion and evolution, and really about the rootedness of religion in, uh, in biology and nature. Uh, uh, for one thing, for mammals and for other, mam other animals too, but since we are mammals, and mammals are 200 million years old, so that's quite enough to think about, uh, we're uh, still operate under, I think, two very powerful forces. One is nurturance. Remember that mammals are creatures who give birth to uh, helpless infants. They don't lay eggs. And those infants would die if they weren't taken care of. What is called parental care, which is a kind of nice 
gender neutrality to what is overwhelmingly statistically maternal care. Most papas don't give a damn, but mamas do, and if they didn't, their offspring would die, very quickly die. Uh, that has enormous repercussions. I will get into that when uh, I think Michael wants to talk about play, but play is impossible without a maternal care. And the other uh, very powerful element among mammals and uh, among humans is dominance. Dominance hierarchies are general in the animal world, but particularly obvious in uh, 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 mammals and, and, in, and in the primates who are our closest relatives. And uh, dominance hierarchies are a complex thing. Uh, they have a lot of cruelty, a lot of uh, fighting, uh, old Alpha males get attacked by ones who want, younger ones who want to replace them. At the same time, nurturance and dominance are not totally at odds with each other. Uh, a mammal mother has to dominate her offspring to some extent or they would die. She has to do things to, to keep them from getting into danger. Uh, uh, one of the things she has to teach them is don't be flip with an alpha male, because that could lead to a very quick end of your little life. On the other hand, uh, alpha males have to have some degree of nurturance. A dominant figure, and this is true in human uh, life too, uh, can try to rule solely by terror and uh, violence, and we can see that that lasts for a while, but uh, in the long run, without some sense that that a uh, dominant figure cares about those who are subordinate to him, because overwhelmingly the dominant fig figure in mammals and humans are male, uh, the, the uh, legitimacy of rule will be gone. So the things that are very fundamental to human life, like nurturance and dominance, that we still have to deal with every day in every relationship, are very old and very rooted in life. Uh, I'll stick with mammals, 200 million years is enough, but it goes beyond that. Uh, uh, so, uh, and then uh, the notion that uh, everything is determined by natural selection. Uh, sheer gen random genetic change uh, uh, giving rise to variation, which is then chosen by who will survive and who will not survive. And there are uh, uh, people who think that's all there is to it. But if you read my chapter two, you will see that there is something called conserved core processes, that not everything is up for the mutation, that uh, animals can manage to protect certain structures over hundreds of millions of years. For instance, most body plans of animals, uh, I'm not talking about plants, or, but animals are uh, at least 300 million years old. Uh, you don't just change a body type randomly. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, uh, there is persistence, there is variation, there is variation that is actually uh, uh, promoted by uh, different structures uh, they, that sort of invite change in some areas and then simply close off, uh, turn off genes 
that they don't want to work. So the notion that everything is randomly throw of the dice, uh, mutation and selection is, is wrong. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is the fact that uh, over the course of, of the life, the new capacities have arisen. And over the course of culture, new capacities have arisen. Uh, and uh, over the course of the history of religion, new capacities have arisen. So I must see I'm probably running out of 10 minutes already, but I'll just say one other thing. Besides my concern to root everything in the whole of life and not make any line that says this is not, I mean, ethics, even politics, are found among advanced mammals. Empathy, I mean, we were just talking in the car with Paul uh, about how, who loves dogs? Well, what empathetic creatures they are. <laughs> how could a mechanism have empathy? They're not mechanisms, they're living beings. But when it gets to the cultural level, and most of the book is about that, I want to cast my net very wide to begin with hunter-gatherer societies, to go on to early agricultural societies, and then the early state, and ultimately to the uh, uh, extraordinary things that happen in the first millennium BCE, uh, when everything that people thought was uh, taken for granted was called into question. And the beginnings of the great traditions in ancient Greece, Israel, uh, China, and India uh, arose. Uh, I, I want to include them all. And uh, I was in China twice last fall, 18 days in Beijing and a week in Hong Kong. It's two separate trips. And I think that the thing that moved me most, because they were so interested in this book, and they actually have, I have a, Harvard Press has a contract for a Chinese translation. I treated China as totally the same as I treated Greece or Israel. There's no us and them. China and India are absolutely as serious, as important, as central as our heritage, which is Israel and Greece, uh, uh, maybe. I think our heritage is mainly the pop music on the radio. There's no heritage left, but that's another story. In any case, uh, although I have found all my life Israel and Greece utterly fascinating, I give them no privilege. I have also been deeply moved by China in much of my life, beginning in my graduate uh, study. Uh, and India, I had to learn for this book because it was the only major culture I didn't really know pretty deeply. And I found that almost absolutely overwhelmingly fascinating. It's the longest chapter in the book. And I think it's just astounding what happened in ancient India. Uh, so that gives you the two dimensions, the depth of the biological connection and the breadth of the comparative uh, uh, treatment. Do you want to stop there? Yes. Okay. Thank you very much for that. You know, I was reflecting as you spoke uh, about India. The wonderful quote that's attributed to Toynbee, I'm not sure if it's correct or not, that it might turn out that the most important event of the 20th century was the coming of the Dharma to the West. Hmm. 
And I was thinking of these great traditions, um, and you mentioned this in your book, uh, because the modern age is the first time when one has the chance that, that religious or spiritual orientation is an elective decision that one can you know, choose among them. And so these great traditions have all become competitive memes in some sense. And you talk early in the book about um, when you're talking about tribal religions, and for example, you compare the Navajo with the Apache, and the questions of which of those uh, you know, tribal memes has had survival capacity in the modern world. Um, and I just wondered, starting at a very broad point, um, would you agree with Toynbee that it might turn out that, that the most important event of the 20th century was the coming of the Dharma to the West? Well, it would really depend on how narrowly you define Dharma. Right, right. <laughs> because I think the presence of the Chinese tradition is as important as, mm -hmm. the, as the Indian. Uh, there's a tendency to think, oh, Confucianism is just philosophy, just secular. That's mm -hmm. not true. Mm -hmm. It's a profound spiritual tradition. And of course, Taoism, the most translated book in the world, is the Tao Te Ching. Uh, uh, so, uh, but that those parts of the world that were considered inferior and other have been accepted as equals is extraordinary. It, however, I think Toynbee would be wrong to make it just the 20th century, since I think if you look at Schopenhauer, if you look at Emerson, it's already beginning. Uh, even in the early uh, Goethe, the East-West Divan. I mean, he's very fascinated with Sanskrit poetry. So it's, it's older than the 20th century. It's beginning maybe even in the 17th century. The discovery of religions other than the, the before that, people thought there were uh, four religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and paganism. Great, very good uh, <laughs> a choice. The three deeply related monotheistic religions and everybody else. <laughs> uh, but already in the 17th century, they were beginning to say, no, hey, this is not adequate. It's much more complicated than that. And paganism is a totally absurd uh, idea because it just throws everything that's quite different into one basket. So uh, it's been percolating, I think, since the age of discovery, but of course much more explicitly in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. There's so many dimensions of this book I'd like to touch on, but what I think I'd like to do first is to ask you with the greatest um, sort of possible succinctness to walk us through um, the major transitions and major stages that you discuss. So, for example, you talked about the importance of chapter two on religion and evolution. Chapter three is on tribal religion and the production of meaning. What is the core theme of your work on tribal religion? Well, I am rooting myself in uh, an evolutionary psychologist by the name of Merlin Donald with whom I've had a long-standing email relationship and in 2008 actually met at a conference at the Max Weber Center at Erfurt University in Germany. I draw a lot from Donald. And he has four stages of the evolution of culture. The first is episodic culture. 
And by episodic culture, that means an awareness of what episode you're in. What is this like to be present? And you were speaking about uh, uh, chimpanzees looking into space. Mm -hmm. Now, Donald would say that's episodic consciousness. A total awareness of what's present. Now, that, uh, you can speak of that as attention without intention. You're only paying attention. You're not trying to do something. However, it happens to be uh, highly adaptive because if you're paying attention to everything and there's some predator out there or some uh, juicy piece of uh, uh, prey, uh, you're going to be alert to that. Whereas if you were just bumbling along thinking of what's inside your own head, you might miss it. So I'm not saying that attention and intention are at odds, but the capacity for full one-pointed attention does seem to go back to the pre-human higher mammals. That's episodic culture. Every stage of Donald never goes away. You don't abandon one stage and go to the next. You go to the next, incorporate the other one, and create some new hybrid that involves them both. And the next stage, and that's where tribal religion comes in, is mimetic. Now, by mimetic, of course, means uh, mimicking or uh, uh, miming, but uh, that's not what uh, really uh, Donald's term is used much more broadly for enacted, embodied communication, using your total body, including your vocal cords, <clears throat> but not words. Uh, singing is older than <laughs> language, according to at least quite a few uh, evolutionary psychologists. Evolutionary psychology is a field I don't recommend as a whole because much of it is junk. The latest New Yorker has quite a damning uh, review of much recent. Uh, but anyway, uh, Merlin Donald is uh, really great. Uh, and uh, again, mimetic culture. It's everywhere. We, don't, we never got rid of it. I mean, if you look at a football game or if you look at a political convention, it's how people use their body, how they come across physically, how they smile, whether they're stiff as a rod, as some candidates are, or they're human, as other candidates are. Uh, there's quite a lot of difference without saying a word. Uh, so, and then the, the mimetic is rooted in uh, collective activity because humans are the only species, although I've just recently read, uh, someone sent me this fascinating data, that there are certain kinds of parrots that can also keep together in time. But aside for humans and one kind of parrot, no animals, including chimpanzees, can keep together in time. If you strike up a rhythm, and, and maybe a little music to go with it, you can lead a bunch of chimpanzees who will follow you in rhythm. But you abandon them, they can't do it by themselves. So this is an extraordinary human capacity, and it's the basis of ritual. The uh, rhythmic beat, the music, the doing things together, keeping in time together, uh, uh, and that's basic. Uh, and it's basic in very simple things in our life. Like uh, when you are introduced to someone, 
very frequently you shake hands. And if you're introduced to someone and you put out your hand to shake the other person and the other person holds it back, what is this guy doing? What's his problem? I mean, not shaking hands is a statement. <laughs> it's not just an absence. It's very much a presence. It's saying, I'm not going to touch you. Oh, that's uh, kind of, uh, in other words, many things we take for granted are totally bodily. They're not, they don't involve language. Uh, but then the, the uh, uh, tribal level involves also the next step. We don't have any nonverbal society, so we cannot prove that there was a stage of human cultural evolution that was purely mimetic without language. But almost certainly there was. Homo sapiens is probably, I mean, speciation is a, is a problematic thing, and it doesn't just begin and end with a simple uh, line in sand. Uh, but the species, the speciation of Homo sapiens is 250,000 years old, roughly. But language is only about 100,000 years old, maybe 120,000. But there was a long period when Homo sapiens' brains, probably that had the capacity for language, didn't, didn't, didn't have it, didn't use it. Uh, but according to Merlin Donald, we have no archaeological evidence for mimetic behavior, uh, but they probably were relating to each other rather complex ways and probably singing together. Uh, there's a, a British archaeologist named Stephen Mithen who, who thinks the Neanderthals, he's got a book called The Singing Neanderthals, that they specialized in music and we specialized in language, although I think we do pretty well with music too. Uh, the, 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 the trouble with the poor Neanderthals, they were great singers, but they never did learn to speak. Uh, and talk, I mean, in language. In any case, uh, myth. And Donald believes that, that myth is fundamental. Myth is what people were out for when language uh, uh, arose. Uh, they needed, because uh, in mimetic behavior, you can mimic an episodic event. You can have an event about an event. Within an episodic culture, you can't think about it. You, even now, very young children can't string together the, the things that they know perfectly well. Uh, if they are taken to uh, a certain place, they will remember they were there before. But they cannot tell you where the places were, where they were, because they don't link the episodes together. Uh, language begins to change that, but especially before language. But mimetic uh, 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 culture can be an event about an event, and thinking about something while not being in it is a tremendously important advantage. Uh, we'll see, come back to that subject later. But language is a huge leap forward in that regard. Language, a myth can tell you a whole lot of episodes, and not only the episodes, but how they're linked together, why episode A leads to B, leads to C, and how some figure in one is transformed and, and uh, killed or uh, becomes a, a much greater figure or whatnot. 
So there are myths of origin, and then there are myths of how we fit into the cosmos that the mythology describes. Yes. Is that the, correct? The, the, so those are two of the central functions yes. that myth serves in these. Yes. So if we move on, and I'd love to spend more time on, on uh, the tribal society, but what is the trend, what, what is new that happens in archaic society? Well, unfortunately, what new is happens in archaic society is not <laughs> any cultural uh, advance. It's still locked in a mimetic and mythic world. Mm -hmm. But what begins to happen, and this has to do with the origin of agriculture, the origin of the surplus. I've been reading work on the origin of war. There are some people think war is coterminous with the human species. That human beings are aggressive and could even kill each other is certainly not uh, uh, at all implausible. Uh, but war means the organized energy of one group to attack and maybe destroy another group. Uh, according to this logic, before agriculture, there is no war. Hunter-gatherers simply don't have enough surplus to fight over. It's sort of uh, one day at a time as far as food goes. There's nothing to fight over. Uh, territories are very fluid. Uh, the world was not very populated. Remember that uh, the notion that the world's human population is 7 billion is insane. And you showed this in, uh, in your study of one of the aboriginal societies in Australia where the movement of another tribe into the space of a first tribe did not create conflict in, in a They did not sense. fight yeah. over territory. Right. Right. The first place they were moving all the time throughout a, a given area themselves. Right. They never stayed still and said, this is mine and you can't come. You're welcome to come. You can come to our ceremony. Yeah. Well, one of the points you make about primitive societies that I found very interesting was you, you've spoken already about that these two factors of nurturance and dominance as key dimensions of our genetic heritage. And then you ask, why is it that a species with such a strong dominance gene, in effect, uh, would have in primitive societies such egalitarian conditions? And you have a very intriguing discussion of why you get uh, egalitarian uh, systems in primitive society. Yes. Uh, this is, comes from an anthropologist named Christopher Bohm, B-O-E-H-M, uh, which he calls reverse hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Namely, in undergatherer societies, they, they really don't want any alpha male. <laughs> alpha male chimpanzees are rather unpleasant creatures, among other things. They try, they never succeed wholly, but they try to monopolize uh, all the females. So nobody can have sex with a, no male can have sex with a female except the alpha. And maybe one or two of his most trusted allies. And uh, the young guys are just out of it, supposedly. I mean, who knows what goes on. But nonetheless, uh, any notion of pair bonding is impossible in an alpha male dominated group. And there's reason to believe that humans have had uh, pair bonding for a very long time. And pair bonding means you've got to not have an alpha male. And the pair bonding is what distinguishes us from primates, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, we have 
male solidarity, which links us to the chimpanzees, right. female solidarity, which links us to the bonobos, right. and uh, uh, cross-gender solidarity, which makes us unique, right. as for, at least as far as other primates are concerned. So uh, in order to maintain a stable uh, relationship between a, a male and female parent and their children, you, you need to have the capacity to get rid of an upstart that would try to dominate everything. And in a small uh, hunter-gatherer society, without much surplus to fight over, that's uh, not so hard. First place, you, uh, you uh, tell him to stop it. Next place, you shun him. You, you won't uh, deal with him. If it goes on, the other men kill him. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it isn't a nonviolent society. It's a society that violently prevents domination by one or a small group of people over everyone else. So primitive societies have a mechanism no, let's say for dealing with... No, Primitive right. is a pejorative okay. term. <laughs> okay, hunter-gatherers. Well, for, to me, primitive is not a pejorative term. But in any case, hunter-gatherer societies or early societies have an effective mechanism for dealing with upstarts, yes. which creates an egalitarian yes. ethos which counteracts the dominance gene, yes. which is one of our inheritance. Then you reach archaic society, and yes. all of a sudden it shifts. Yeah, because and you have this identification of the leader with God in one way or another. Well, that takes a lot of work, of yeah. course, because yeah. undergatherers don't have gods at all. They just have right. powerful beings. Right. Uh, until you have somebody that claims to be a king, you right. cannot think of God as a king. Right. Uh, so, uh, so with the surplus to fight over, then certain groups of warriors can uh, create a military force and uh, establish dominance over. I mean, in uh, I think ancient Assyria and ancient Egypt are archaic societies that. Uh, had millions of people. This is unheard of. I mean, this is recent, really recent. If you think how long the human species has been around, this is like five or 6,000 years. Uh, it's not that long. Uh, we never had states. We went for hundreds of thousands of years without states, without any boss telling us what to do, without any armies, without any policemen, anything like that. As I say, it wasn't peaceful. Uh, because uh, um, undergatherers uh, can get angry and they can kill each other in, in a fight, to be sure. But they didn't have any power structure that said, these people will get more and you will get less and shut up because we'll kill you if you don't like it. That's what happens with the early state. You begin to have large-scale peasantry, and peasants are always exploited. They work themselves to death and then most of their crop, or at least half of their crop, is taken from them and given to a few people at the top. And that's where you begin to have a religious system which splits so that there yes. are elite yes. practices and non-elite You practices. need to have, for a stable, archaic society, you need legitimation. You need a reason why somebody should be getting so much more than everybody else. And you say, oh, because he's... He's a god, or he's a son of God, or he's a God's chosen one, the king. Great. Hallelujah. And then they have rituals about how great the king is. Uh, in the meantime, the poor are starving. 
Read, read Amos and Hosea about how the poor are starving and the rich are pressing their uh, uh, heads into the ground. Uh, uh, that's what begins to happen. So along with the... Uh, and I might add, yeah. uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates' net worth is the equivalent of 40% of the American people. That is about 125 million people. Is that so different from the archaic state? Not at all. So along with the split in, in religious ceremony between the, the wealthy and, and the poor, you also have the development of priest classes, which you characterize as, in some respects, the uh, equivalent of an intellectual class. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah. And these intellectuals are tasked with explaining why yes. the rich should have all the money. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> among other things. Right and anointing the ones who have the power, and sometimes calling them into question. There are quasi-prophets in archaic society. They don't get much leverage. But when things start turning bad, when there are famines and the barbarians are causing a lot of trouble, and the people that are supposed to be taking care of you aren't, people say, where's the king? Where are the gods? What's going on here? And then you have the opening for some kind of religious questioning of the legitimacy of the whole situation. Right. Now, isn't that the point that then makes the shift to the axial age? Yes, exactly. So the axial age, which you describe as the, the, the age of theory, right, that, that people begin to think critically yes. about this inheritance from yes. the archaic yes. age right. of a set of beliefs about how things are supposed to be. Exactly. Right. And in every case in the axial age, the identification of the existing power structure with the divine is called into question. Right. And so then you have a very interesting question about where the criticism came from. Did it come from the intellectual class of the priests, or were they too bought into the hierarchy, or did it come from the renunciates? Well, the the difference between renunciants and priests is not all that clear. Right. Uh, And the Israelite prophets, uh, Isaiah at least, was a priest. Right. Uh, uh, There was a tendency among Protestants to say prophets great, priests bad, because uh, Protestants didn't have priests, allegedly. Uh, But uh, actually, uh, yes, uh, uh, renouncers are found in all the great traditions, uh, particularly vividly in India, and probably the first monastic order was uh, Buddhist. And uh, since Christian monasticism was maybe three or 400 years later, the possibility that it was stimulated by Buddhist monasticism cannot be overlooked. Uh, Egypt, after all, had a lot of visitors from India, and that's where monasticism began, Christian monasticism. But, uh, You know, we can't explain uh, with any simple sociological formula why what happened happened. But the fact of the matter is, and Weber was very brilliant in saying this, Weber remains the greatest sociologist of uh, comparative religion who ever lived, even though he made a lot of mistakes. I certainly don't compare myself to Weber. But there are two things about axial age religion. It is one, a religion of virtuosi, that is, spiritually gifted people who were capable of extraordinary feats of asceticism and extraordinary feats of 
caring for other people at their own cost. And it is a religion of intellectuals. It raises the bar of how we think. Uh, and uh, it's very odd. I mean, you can certainly easily think of, of Jesus as a religious virtuoso, because he really was quite as astounding in uh, many of the spiritual things that we are told that he did. But to think of Jesus as an intellectual, what do you mean this carpenter's son? What's going on here? Read the parables. Read the Sermon on the Mount. This is heavy going. This is serious stuff. I mean, philosophers still aren't making too much clarity on some of these things. This is a, a great mind uh, at work. Uh, and that's true of all the great figures. The Buddha, uh, incredible intellectual genius, no question. Uh, and, and the writers of the Upanishads. Uh, and the great Confucians, Mencius, is an absolute genius. Uh, so there is a new level of capacity to bring critical reflection on the given reality. Now, you, you, you make a very interesting uh, uh, move uh, into looking at the, the psychology of moral development of Piaget and Kohlberg yes. in, in reflecting on these developmental shifts in religion. Uh, yes. So from the Piagetian and Kohlbergian stages of uh, concrete thinking to the sort of acceptance of how things are supposed to be to post-conventional yes. thinking. And you, you sort of, uh, you, you make a, I don't know if you adopt it directly, but you look at the parallel between that, uh, you know, uh, individual development and the development of these phases of religious consciousness. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Chapter one lays out the uh, ontogeny, and then chapter three lays out the phylogeny. Right. And they're very parallel. Yeah. So one of the really interesting things that you did that uh, fascinated me was that you looked at uh, Plato's myth of the cave yeah. and uh, the Buddha's journey Yes. Uh, as two parallel stories of a movement in consciousness. In yes. Could you describe that parallel? Well, the, the, both of them involve calling into question the givenness of everyday life. Uh, we, we draw on a, a, a great sociological phenomenologist named Alfred Schutz, who spoke of the world of daily life as the taken-for-granted world, the world that the world as we see it is the only world there is, uh, and the capacity to uh, put that in a different perspective, so that one says, "Well, this is one possible reality, but it's not the only possible reality." And in fact, the world as of everyday life may be illusory, may be false, may be a lie. And the Buddha says the world is a burning house. It is a lie. Uh, and uh, uh, the Buddha calls into question every taken for grantedness. And the parable of the cave, the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic is saying 
the world of daily life is you're really chained in a cave and you don't, don't, what you think is reality is just the reflection of images because behind your back, which you can't see because you're chained up, there's um, body guys with fire and they're holding puppets in front of the fire and now what you're seeing is just these uh, 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 fake things. But if you could escape your bonds and go out of the cave and go up into the sunlight, you would see the real world. Uh, so in both cases, there is a contrast between a sense of deep reality and the givenness of the unquestioned taken for granted everyday life. Um, now, in the long term, every religious tradition has to put these things back together again. Uh, uh, but the, the fact that there is now a crack, that what is taken for granted is really never legitimately totally taken for granted, that everything we encounter has a big question mark over it. Now, uh, Mr. Dawkins thinks that only scientists think that way. The fact is, all the great religions were thinking that way. They were raising the question about everything that was taken for granted. They were not mimicking some past thing as having the whole truth. They were moving into new understandings of truth that called everything existing into question. Then the tradition can become, as Marx Weber said, routinized and solidified and fundamentalized and no longer open to question. To be sure, that's part of the history of religion is a constant uh, tension between establishment and reform, between using religion to prop up the taken for granted and using religion uh, or religion itself becoming the question as to why we shouldn't take for granted the givenness of the world. So I'd like to ask you now to reflect on some of the other extraordinary uh, figures who've thought about the nature of religion, not necessarily from a sociological perspective. So for example, Leibniz and Huxley proposed that there's a perennial philosophy at the heart of all the great spiritual traditions. And one sees this picked up and uh, made more particular by uh, traditionalist thinkers like uh, René Ganon and Fritjof Schoen, who not only argue that there's a core of a perennial philosophy, but argue that every religion has a, a, a mystic core and then a shell that around the mystic core, and that every great civilization is built around a religion, and that that mystic core and the shell uh, are always in tension with each other, and that the fate of the civilization depends on the skill with which the religious community handles the tension between the mystic core and the fundamentalist shell, which is necessary for people who are functioning at lower levels of Kohlbergian or Piagetian religion, in effect. In other words, that, that because large masses of people need uh, black and white systems, uh, those black and white systems are in tension with a mystic core which Jesus or Buddha or whoever proposed, or, or yeah, the Huxley, you mean, is Aldous? Excuse me. You you said Leibniz and, and Huxley, meaning Aldous Huxley. Yes. Okay. Right. So I'm I'm asking. In other words, here is a perception, uh, a non sociological perception, in effect, yes. a philosophical perception, yes. 
that there is a core perennial philosophy yes. and then elaborated into yes. a view that there's a mystic core and a shell and the fate of a civilization depends on yes. the skill with which yes. the mystic core is kept alive because the shell is necessary. Do you know Houston Smith? I do. Have you had him in this? In your... I haven't, but I know his work. I yeah. see. Yeah. Well, Houston certainly believes that. Yes, right. What you laid yeah. out is pure yeah. Houston yeah, Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Houston's one of my oldest friends. I knew him when he was teaching at MIT. Mm -hmm. It's very odd to think of Houston, Houston as mm -hmm. MIT, but he was there for mm -hmm. a while. Uh, 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 actually, ironically, is much older than Leibniz. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. The Renaissance was recovering the great classics of uh, Greece mm -hmm. and Rome. And they were saying, look, the Bible is great, but this stuff is just as great. Mm -hmm. And we can even see the same truth in the Bible as we can see in Plato or as we can see in Cicero. Uh, and really, uh, all these things are saying the same thing in just different ways and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the, the emergence of serious study of religion uh, required a profound criticism of this notion of the perennial philosophy. Mm -hmm. It had, and it starts in the 17th century, and it gets really going in the 19th century, but it starts with the age of uh, exploration. No, it, they aren't all the same. Mm -hmm. They're profoundly different. Mm -hmm. They're asking different questions. They're not giving different answers to the same question. And that is the beginning of serious study of religion. And I'm sorry, I... Uh, very fond of Houston, and I love the perennial philosophy people because everything they believe is in ethically is on track with my own, but it's just wrong. It's, <laughs> it, it's, not, it's, it's not that there aren't certain things that are in common, and it's not even that there isn't. I mean, I speak in my uh, first chapter of mm -hmm. unitive experience, which I think is a psychological uh, possibility that's true for any human being. But there's no unitive experience that isn't culturally expressed and culturally formed. In fact, in almost every culture that has unitive experiences, they have unitive experiences that fit the cultural expectation of what a unitive experience should be. So Christian unitive experience are not the same as Buddhist universe, and Taoists and are not the same. And unless you see that there's a fundamental difference between each of these traditions, in spite of the fact that there are some things profoundly shared, you're just missing too much. Well, and thank you for that. And I, <laughs> uh, so I would simply note that uh, the Dalai Lama, that uh, Brother David Steindl-Rast, uh, that Thich Nhat Hanh, and many others who approach this not from a sociological perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, may have a different frame from yours. And that I'm sure you're correct that the serious sociological study of religion leads in that direction. But I'm not at all certain that the great spiritual teachers of our time would agree with your conclusion as superior to their experiential sense of the unity. So uh, you make a very major point of saying that the development of religion from hunter-gatherer religion to axial age religion is not a moral evaluation of the superiority of the later forms to the earlier forms. And so I wonder 
if you make the claim that the sociological imagination is superior to the spiritual imagination in evaluating human religious and spiritual experience. You can read this book and think it's not a spiritual book? I believe it's a spiritual book, but you just made a very strong claim that the uh, serious study of religion had led to clarity that the a perennial philosophy really had no standing. None of the figures that you mention mm -hmm. are serious students of religion. That's They're an interesting They're profound point. spiritual figures. Yeah. They have the capacity to understand that people in very different traditions share some of their most profound spiritual insight. They have not spent their life in the study of several traditions. They don't know how different they are. Mm -hmm. they, they feel they have this common core, and at some level they're right. Mm -hmm. I don't say it's an either or. In fact, almost everything I ever study, I find that both and is always superior to either or. So the, the perennial philosophy people have a point, mm -hmm. but they push it much too far, much too far. Because at this point in the world, we need to understand difference. We are just simply not all the same. There are certain things that we share. We all need nurturance and we all have to deal with dominance, for instance. <laughs> I don't care where you are, you have to deal with those two things. Uh, so it's not that there aren't things in common, but to imagine that really, and the Renaissance thought this, the ancient Israelites and the ancient Greeks were saying the same thing is just to miss exactly what's most important about ancient Israel and ancient Greece, spiritually, not sociologically. You are not getting the fact that Plato sees things that Isaiah doesn't see and vice versa, mm -hmm. and that they can learn from each other, or we can learn from both of them, because the fact that the creativity of the West is in part because we have these two deeply incompatible traditions that can never be completely fused. Uh, refuse to be completely fused. And they're always fighting each other at every stage in history. And the whole notion that reason can answer everything comes from Greece, not from Israel. And Israel wants to tell us there are some profound experiences of revelation. And if you don't know that, you don't understand reality. And uh, we're still stuck in that. Uh, but it can be a creative stuckness. Uh, uh, all systematic theology is basically Greek however much it claims to be biblical. Uh, and and, and the, the liveliest people, I mean, I haven't had the good fortune to know Paul Tillich a bit, a profoundly biblical Christian and a deep Platonist. <laughs> but uh, Tillich knew they weren't the same. He knew that it was always a struggle to deal with them and that it was actually spiritually uh, healthy to face the fact that they weren't the same. They weren't different ways of saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. They were talking about different things. Well, I will, I will not push the point, and I accept, uh, <laughs> I accept your vigorous view, and, uh, and I have to say that I am not entirely convinced. All right. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced. But I want to go to another point of, of creative uh, tension between us, which is uh, your assertion that um, you give preeminence to play in, uh, in evolutionary history as, as the core uh, source of human religious experience, if I understand correctly. And, and I said to you before we started 
that I thought that it was an extraordinary uh, defense of, or, or a, a very creative uh, exploration. But it seemed to me that, that in uh, both animal behavior and in the religious traditions, one finds many other potential uh, uh, primate sources other than play. So for example, as I mentioned to you, if you look at the Hindu tradition of yoga and you have yana yoga of wisdom, the bhakti yoga of devotion, the karma yoga of work, you know, and so on and so forth, all these different yogas, uh, uh, I think you find in the great traditions a, a wide range of um, sources, not just the source in play, of the human religious experience. And, and you were arguing to me, again, that uh, you saw a strong reason that play was really at the root of it. And I'd love to hear more well, about that. Well, uh, can you find all these different uh, yogas among primates? Well, uh, that's what we were, we were briefly alluding to. So for example, it seems to me that in primates, that the, the mother-child bond is, remains a, a very strong thing. Oh, uh, but, right. but th th that's the basis of play. There's no one who, uh, who emphasizes uh, the nurturant relation between parent and child and usually mother and child than I do in this book. No, I agree you, with you that. You look in the index, mm -hmm. you look... If you have the whole book on your computer, as mm -hmm. I do, I can find, I can put in mother, mm -hmm. and I can find dozens and dozens and dozens. Right. The nurturance of mother towards you, young animals is the basis from which everything comes. And I make it very clear that without that, play is impossible. Play requires what uh, uh, Gordon Burkhart, the greatest living expert on animal play, calls a relaxed field. Mm -hmm. That is, you cannot be concerned with uh, uh, the struggle for existence and play at the same time. You need to be warm. You need to be uh, fed. Mm -hmm. You need to be relatively safe that predators are not mm -hmm. around. Then you can play. The uh, natural selection is called off for the moment. See, that's why some of the biologists who want to stress natural selection at every point, uh, play emerges by putting a bracket around natural selection and saying, we're not going to do that right now. We're going to do something else. We're going to play. And play then can lead into the notion of fairness, that uh, a big, strong animal uh, can play with a young, relatively weak animal only if the big, strong animal handicaps itself. Then they can play. If the big animal is going to take advantage of his uh, size and strength, there's no game, no play, nothing can happen. Uh, there are rules of play, and it's the beginning of ethics, and it's the beginning of religion, but only the beginning. Uh, the amazing thing is, and I do quote this uh, wonderful the developmental psychologist, Alison Gopnik, who's at Berkeley, whom I haven't even met, although I adore her work, uh, who shows how important play is right now in our society for very young children 
They prefer the world of play to the world of what we call reality. <laughs> and they learn all kinds of things. Pretend play is the nursery of all our culture, not just religion, but everything. So nurturance clearly is a precondition of play. The yes. question is whether, for example, just take, just take love as an example. Uh, many people would intuitively believe that, that love lay behind uh, the core of, of religious experience. And yes, love or nurturance is a prerequisite of play, but does that mean that play is the primary conduit through which love reaches religious and spiritual experience? Or is love also a source of religious and spiritual experience? Of course love is a source of religious yeah. experience, and yeah. so is power, and mm -hmm. so is dominance. Mm -hmm. uh, these are given. Mm -hmm. But the space to create new possibilities is provided by is play. play. Okay, yeah. That's the key. It's mm -hmm. the relaxed field that's the key. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, there are other relaxed fields, mm -hmm. like sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course, dreams can be very creative. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, sleep can't quite do it without mm -hmm. a lot of help. Because play seems to be polymorphous. It's just amazing what can come out of play. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read that uh, Jan Hoitzinger book, Homo Ludens? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you see what he, he makes enormous claims for play. Yes, he does, yeah. And you point to many, many sources of the, the play hypothesis. Yes. Um, I want to open the... the uh, again, it's not play as against other things. No, no. It's both and, always. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to open the conversation to other people here. Uh, I'd like to take some questions. If you'd say your name and keep your, your comment brief, I'd appreciate that. Anybody uh, have anything they'd like to ask? A great silence descends. I will go on. Nobody Come wants on. to know what part of hell I came from? Maybe did you? <laughs> okay. We're doing all right? Go ahead. Can you speak more about ritual? I've only read the table of contents. Uh-huh. Well, of course, ritual is the most obvious thing that's rooted in play. Because... Play occurs in bouts. It has a beginning and an end. It occurs in a place, a place set apart to play. And so sacred time and sacred space are basic for ritual. Uh, uh, play is always embodied. Ritual is always something enacted. We use our bodies. We may use language, of course, which uh, animals can't, can't do in, when they're playing. Uh, but, but music and, uh, and language are part of ritual. Uh, a ritual, since it's rooted in what Donald calls the mimetic, is sort of the most primitive, in a non-pejorative sense, the most original form of uh, joint religious action. And out of ritual comes all other kinds of things, uh, uh, religious art, uh, forms of meditation, all kinds of other things, uh, uh, belief systems. But ritual, usually in most you, you want to know what a religion is. It's a profound mistake of basically a Protestant and then modern Western notion that you need to list what they believe. I believe X, I believe Y, I don't believe this. That's not what religion's about. Religion is not a set of propositions. 
Religion is a way of living in the world. So you need to know what people do. And then you'll find out what they believe. And you'll need to know what they do when they say they are doing something together religiously, which means you'll need to study their ritual. Uh, I've had students come to me and say, uh, you know, I really would like to join a church after reading Habits of the Heart or something like that, uh, but I don't believe in God. Uh, I, 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 what church should I join? I said, well, I'm a professor. I cannot tell you what church to join. I'm not in the business of, of recruiting people to anything. Uh, and then, uh, so the person will uh, continue to try to get me to tell him what to do, which I won't do. And uh, then I say, but you know, you, how do you know you don't believe in God? Is God something that you sit down and figure out all by yourself with, in terms of logic and rationality? Or maybe if you joined a religious group that used that word and saw how they used it in their liturgy and in their ethical life, it would begin to have some meaning to you. Uh, and I remember hearing uh, a sermon uh, we, in my church, which is the Episcopal Church, we have religious orders. <laughs> They're copied from Catholics, but nonetheless, there was a monk preaching. And he said uh, there was a professor of uh, uh, Christian theology at Yale Divinity School who was himself Eastern Orthodox. And uh, uh, he was teaching a course on the creed. Now, the creed in my Episcopal Church is said every Sunday, every is part of the basic liturgy. That would be true in the Catholic Church as well. Uh, uh, and then somebody in the first day of the course pops up and says, but I don't believe in the creed. And, and the professor says, oh, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, uh, and then he finishes the whole lecture and the guy says, I still don't believe in the creed. And the, uh, 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 oh, he says, it's not my creed. And then the professor says, of course it's not your creed, it's the church's creed. And maybe at the end of this course, or maybe at the end of your life, you'll understand what it means. Which reminds me also of a great passage in Hegel, in the uh, uh, Phenomenology of Consciousness, where he says that uh, the creed spoken by an adolescent means something very different to a creed spoken to an older person for whom it's become part of his or her entire life. The same words, the same words. And you know, if I'm just, since there are, I'll just say one more thing. Uh, when people asked George W. Bush uh, what was different between the Episcopal Church in which he was raised and uh, the Methodist Church which he now belongs to, he said, well, uh, the Episcopal Church has the same service every week. There's a different sermon, but same service. And, and uh, uh, Methodist Church is more laid back. We have different things going on. Uh, now, uh, uh, that implies that uh, the same thing every week is somehow a problem. Now, uh, if you said to your wife, uh, or your wife said to you, do you love me? And you said, oh, why do you ask? I told you that yesterday. There are certain things that we don't, yesterday won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> the words have to be now. 
you can't go to church and if they say the Lord's Prayer, you say, why are you saying the Lord's Prayer? You said that last week. Uh, it's a different meaning of words. I mean, the notion of words as information instead of meaning, which is what's so prevalent in the world today, is a great debasement. The meaning of those kinds of profound words like, yes, I love you, is never exhausted. It's never a piece of information. It's always a profound communication between two people that has to be renewed and renewed and renewed. Yes? Not having read the book, I'm curious to know if, if at any point you discuss the work of René Girard and the discussion of sacrifice and scapegoating in the development of religion. Well, I have met René Girard and have read some of his work. Uh, and I think he's got a profound insight about scapegoating and sacrifice. But I think he is simply empirically wrong to think that sacrifice is at the root of religion. What uh, I have come to see is that hunter-gatherers do not have sacrifices. You have to have a notion of a divine being that's radically different from you in order for sacrifice to make sense. Sacrifice is only present in hierarchical societies. And the terrifying thing is that the earliest uh, hierarchical societies, the early state, just coming out of hunter-gatherer egalitarianism, pr practice human sacrifice, sometimes on a ghastly scale. And what is human sacrifice saying? You are nothing. It's up there that's everything. The king and the god behind the king. Mm. And I'm reading now a book by uh, a guy who teaches at both the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and, uh, and Oxford on the end of sacrifice. When did sacrifice end? In Judaism and Christianity, of course it ended with the destruction of the temple. But theologically, why did it end? Why was the Eucharist not a bloody sacrifice? Why do we not kill animals every week? Uh, so I, I think Girard is uh, onto a lot of things, but I think he's also just wrong empirically. You see, I do think people can be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you had a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, little, a couple of days ago, uh, the Dalai Lama came out with something, and I'd be interested in hearing your hearing your thoughts on it. He said, all the world's religions, with their emphasis on love, compassion, patience, tolerance, and forgiveness, can and do promote inner values. But the reality of the world today is that grounding ethics in religion is no longer adequate. This is why I am increasingly convinced that the time has come to find a way of thinking about spirituality and ethics beyond religion altogether. Well, Again, the initial premise is that all these good things are in all the religions. The trouble is there are a lot of other things that aren't so nice in those religions too, uh, like the attack on the uh, consulate in Benghazi, which was probably carried out by Al-Qaeda uh, religious zealots who think that blowing up people is part of their religion. So empirically, again, uh, the Dalai Lama is not entirely 100% right. They can certainly profoundly be found in, in Islam, 
and uh, 90, 98, 99, God knows, even maybe more percent of Muslims would not appro- not approve at all of the, that kind of behavior. So it can't be linked to Islam because the uh, 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 violence has been justified in Christianity and Judaism and even in Buddhism. I mean, there were warrior monks in medieval Japan killing each other. So uh, all the bad things are in all the religions too. But when you say move beyond religion, again, I think it's an effort to say, well, since we haven't been able to get together with religions, maybe there's some other way. I think that's, again, uh, the Dalai Lama is wonderful because he's always so hopeful. He's trying to find a way to get out of this mess to find a more peaceful, harmonious world. And I love him for that. I have the deepest respect for him. But I don't think we're going... I think we can respect the deep ethical seriousness of people who reject any existing religion. But I don't think they are going to answer our problems any better than the religions we've got. I'd like to close with, with one, uh, uh, one final question myself. Um, we haven't spoken of uh, much of um, the comparative study of mythology uh, as a, a route to understanding religion, although you, you use a lot of, of references to, to mythology in the book. But, but when we think of sort of paths other than um, the sociology of religion to understanding uh, religious and spiritual experience. Many of us are familiar with the efforts of people like Joseph Campbell or James Hillman or Carl Jung and others to look at uh, archetypal uh, experiences that it is claimed repeat in different parts of the world as um, a unitive way of thinking about uh, uh, religious experience. Um, my guess is that you would be critical of that, but I'm curious um, <laughs> as to uh, what specifically you would say. Well, I've read a lot of that stuff. I knew Joseph Campbell pretty well. I think uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces is a really good book, mm-hmm. and it does make the point that you're uh, trying to make. I think uh, a lot of Campbell is not worth that much. Uh, uh, and I think the, the whole Jungian archetypal thing is, I, t- I read a lot of it at one point in my life. Uh, I think it, again, has a certain validity. Uh, I have not found it, uh, on the whole, to be the answer. I think it's one way of thinking that is fruitful, and productive. Uh, there's another Jungian who talks, writes about religion, whose name is Escapes Me, that I like a lot better than Joseph Campbell. Uh, you don't know who I It's not James Hillman. No. Marianne Webber. Oh, no. Uh, anyway, Webber, mind. Okay. Uh, this is a European. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I I I respect that tradition, and I think it has a lot to to say. But I I think uh, that beyond a certain point, again, it it begins to miss what I think is another critical dimension, which is 
difference, that we are profoundly involved in difference. And really, that's one of the deepest challenges of the world, that uh, we need to have mechanisms to cope with the fact that we are and are going to remain different. We're not going to be all homogenized into one lovely common belief system. Uh, we need to respect the fact that none of our traditions have all the truth, that there is truth in every tradition, and we can be instructed and learn from every tradition. But we have uh, different traditions, and they're not going away. And uh, that's part of our challenge. Robert Bella, author of Religion and Human Evolution. Uh, it's been an extraordinary honor to have this conversation with you, and thank you for being with us tonight. Well, thank you very much.